All right, Mitch was uh, correct in that I am starting off bringing the word to you, but we actually have something a little bit extra. Um, Dan, Bryce, and myself actually are going to preach together today, and uh, we've timed our sermons. We're all speaking for about 45 minutes, so this is going to... Now we're going to do 10 10 to 12 minutes each, and we'll split it up into three. I saw some of you get up and almost walk out to the parking lot there, but... But we're going to share from God's Word this morning, all three of us, um, especially in the area of fathership, and to spur one another on this morning for those of us who are dads, or one day will be dads, and look forward to that privilege that God gives us. And so whether you're married and and you're a dad already, or or if you're single, these messages this morning will speak to you regardless of where you're at. But as uh, I begin, I chose the, the life of Philip to speak to you this morning from. Here, Philip is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6, and so I'm just going to read from uh, verses, verses 1 to 4, just to get our hearts prepared. Acts 6, 1 to 4. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. And for those of you who know that passage well, there were seven men chosen, and Philip happened to be one of them. Now, when we're introduced to Philip here in Acts chapter 6, a crisis has, had arisen in the church. You'll remember that the church in Jerusalem by this point had grown very quickly, from 120 in the upper room to a few thousand now. As part of that growth, the church had a large influx of widows. And the problem was that a division had occurred between two separate groups of widows. There were the widows who were the Hebrew widows, who were native to Israel, born and raised there, and would have spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. The Hellenistic widows, the other group, were still Jewish, but they were outside of the land of Israel, and they were greatly influenced by the Greek culture. So there was a favoritism going on. The Hebrew native, uh, he, the native, the, the native Hebrew widows <laughs> were favored in the food rationing. And those living outside of Palestine who came into the land, now because of the growth of the church, were not favored due to their second-class citizenship, if you will. So this discrimination threatened the unity of the church. And so the apostles in their wisdom appointed seven men to deal with the issue. But they weren't just any types of ordinary people. They had to, as verse 3 describes, be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. Now, what's incredible about this choosing of Philip, in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the church by this point had 5,000 men alone. And out of this 5,000 men, Philip was one of the seven chosen. Another key point about this is that this evaluation didn't come from himself. He didn't say, choose me because I know I'm full of the Holy Spirit and wise and of good report. That was a determination made by the evaluation of others about him. 
So what's really important for us then is that he became known within the 5,000 men community to be one of upstanding character. Now what, what much could be said about Philip, the gospel clearly made a lasting impact in his life. Jesus had clearly done an amazing work in him for this to be his character and the definition of, of him by his peers. So for us as men, may that be said of us. May we as fathers now and in the future seek to know the Lord better and have him do a transforming work in our lives so that we will be of noble and godly character. Now this transforming work of God into his heart was seen later in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8 and 9. Because here we see that he had not only become a server of the church, he had opened up his home and he was known as a generous and hospitable person. I'll read Acts chapter 21 to you in verse 8. It says, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. The key verse here is that we stayed at the house of, the, of Philip. Now, we is in the important pronoun there. It wasn't just one person. There was a bunch of them. Luke is the writer, so he's one of them. But in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4, there were seven others in this group. So Philip didn't just open up his house to one person. He had opened up his um, house to seven traveling missionaries. I say this to demonstrate that this was not a small entourage, and yet Philip was so willing to invite his Christian brothers into his home and share his resources with them. Again, may this be said of us as we grow in our maturity in Christ, that our houses become places that are open to fellow Christian brothers and sisters and, and others as well. Now, for those of you who've been married a long time, you know you might want to clear that with your wife first before you start inviting people over. A really good idea, Mark says. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but regardless, um, we just want to always think in the, in the category of generosity and our house being a welcoming place. But what it impacted me the most probably in these verses is something that you don't really see at first read. And you have to kind of read between the lines. But one thing we learn about Philip, besides being hospitable, being full of wisdom, of good reputation, as he was a man who knew how to extend forgiveness to others. He was a man of incredible mercy. Do you remember in Acts chapter 6 who one of his closest friends was? Stephen. What happened to Stephen? Died. Who killed him? The Apostle Paul who gave his, his right hand of approval for his life. When Luke says, we stayed at Philip the Evangelist's house, who was part of that entourage? The Apostle Paul. Now think about that. I want you to think right now, who is your, one of your best friends in your life? A godly man. Who's one of your best friends? Imagine a, a, um, you find out that a, a religious terrorist in Calgary or Okotoks kills one of your best friends for a stance on Jesus. And then a few years later, you find out he comes to Christ and he comes to town and you're going to invite him into your home and not reject him, you know, not, not feed him. 
not talk about him behind his back while he's sleeping with the other guys. He's in your house, and he has extended the same mercy as the other six. Nobody can do that apart from experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in their own life. And yet he could extend that to Paul, who has killed his best friend. If I've learned anything in 10 years as a, as a man and as a pastor, I would say that uh, forgiveness is one of the critical pieces. Unforgiveness is a killer inside of us. Emotionally, spiritually, creates physical problems in our bodies, all sorts of things. If anyone had the right to hold on to unforgiveness, Philip would have been one of them. And yet he had set Paul free. And he saw the transformation in his life and knew him to be a fellow brother in the Lord. And so may we learn from him if we're harboring any unforgiveness to anyone at this current moment. One other application we can learn from Philip, he was a man to show us, uh, share his faith. He's defined here as Philip the Evangelist. So in verse 8 we read, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. So we see the nature of his heart. He's defined as someone who had a huge concern for the lost and sought to share his faith. And again, as men, may we be known for that, to share in the heart of Philip, that we see people for more than just the outside and, what, and the things that we tend to judge people for, that we see them as someone who's created in the image of God, who Jesus wants to know and the cross is for. And we look to bridge the gaps and share our faith with others. But finally, we see that Philip was clearly a godly father, he might, that he discipled his children and raised them in the ways of the Lord. Because in verse 9, his daughters are described as virgin daughters who are prophetesses. So clearly, um, Philip taught his daughters the nature of God's design for marriage and for sexuality. And the fact that they were prophetesses means that they were someone who spoke on God's behalf. And they were obviously used by the Lord themselves. So clearly, these girls had a strong faith apart from their dad, but their mom and dad would have imparted this faith to them. And so clearly, Philip had done something right as a father. So again, it's important for us learning from Philip that we must be men who seek to pass on our faith to our children, that we model it in the way we live, through the actions of our hands and feet and the way we speak and what comes out of our mouths. And so we pray that this would be an encouraging message to you this morning. Amen. I know it wasn't meant on purpose this morning as we sang that our God is a good, good father. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but uh, the last time we sang it, Mitch said, I'm a good, good father. <laughs> uh, I... I want to talk to you about a father that probably uh, gets overlooked quite often, and that is Job. Uh, a friend of mine from Kentucky never called him Job. He always called him Job. I don't know why that is. But when you think about Job, you don't think typically about him as being a good dad. You think about him enduring through suffering. But I'd like to propose to you this morning uh, that he was uh, a pretty incredible father. If you turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1, Job chapter 1, and I want to read verses uh, 1 through to 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, 
And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of them on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them, according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Again, Job is most uh, noted for his horrific life that he endured. And he endured it, and he was blameless, and he was upright. It talks about here as uh, fearing God and always turning away from evil. That's the kind of character Job was, especially in the midst of his suffering. But more than just being a godly man in general, he was a godly dad. He was a godly dad. He had a very high value for family. If you picked it up there in verse 2, it said that he had seven sons and three daughters. That's ten children. And later on, at the end of Job, it describes him as having another seven sons and another three daughters. That's ten children that he fathered. Did I get the right 20? See? I'm a good, good father. I just don't know math. He had a high value for family, and such was his value that at the end of his life, he could have been described in a number of different ways. But in the end of Job, chapter 42, it says this, In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days." As it's describing his life and the extension of his life, it's described and defined as seeing his family increase. Not his empire or his fame or experiences or travel. It defines his life as seeing his family increase. And I can say that the older I get, the more I like to see my family increase as well. And the older you get, men here who are older, you understand that family becomes more and more important the older you get. For Job, family was important to him right from the get-go, and he loved children. The thing about having children for us as men and women both is that we get to participate in God's life-giving intentions. That's an incredible privilege. God has these life-giving intentions that he wants for all of humanity, and we get to participate in that by having children. And it's a key part of eternity that we have an active role in. As dads, it's a, it's a key part of eternity that we actually have an active role in, one of those few opportunities we have in this world. And Job, this godly man, he had a very high value for family. So how did he do in terms of his day-to-day with, with, his da- with his children? Well, he fostered very tight family relationships. We pick it up there in verse 4. It says, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. On his day is most likely, as I've researched, it's more, most likely on their birthdays. So on their birthdays, they invite all the brothers and sisters to come, and they would come and have a feast together. This is very different from what we've been learning. Those have been going through Genesis with us. I know Chapel House has been as well. 
Remember in Genesis, uh, Isaac, as he uh, had his two sons, he favored one over the other. And as a result, it, it created all kinds of strife between them to the point where Esau wanted to kill his brother Jacob. And Jacob, when he had children, he did the exact same thing. He had favoritism for Joseph over the rest. And as a result, there was this sibling rivalry that carried on to the next generation. If you foster a home where children get along together, it fosters them wanting to be with one another. We would tell our kids, if you can't play with one another, you can't play with anybody else. So figure it out. You're going to have to play with one another first. And I don't know exactly how Job did this, but there, it was the sons and daughters. It was them who was deciding to get together for this feast. Uh, and probably about, maybe about 10 per year that they would gather together. So he fostered these tight family relationships and these get-togethers. In addition, though, he wanted to invest in their spiritual well-being. And we picked that up there in verse 5. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Just thus Job did continually. So he knew that they were having these get-togethers, and he was concerned for them. He was concerned for what may happen during that feast. Now, there could be a number of things that maybe he was watching out for. Maybe it's because they uh, were drinking too much. I don't know. Maybe it had something entirely different. Maybe it was their conversations. John Wesley was the modern uh, founder of Methodism, and he says, try not to speak with somebody for more than an hour. If you do, you'll likely sin. So he would tell people, don't speak longer than an hour with people. And I think that's a good piece of advice. Maybe that was going on here. I mean, they had a long feast going on here. And Job, he wants to make sure that his kids are doing okay spiritually. And so he gets up early in the morning and he offers burnt sacrifices to God. Now, what's he doing there? This is in the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. And offering burnt sacrifices, it's a reminder to the people that, that blood needs to be shed whenever sin is done. Now, by offering these burnt offerings, these children weren't forgiven if they had done something wrong during that feast, but it was part of the requirement. Of course, we learn from the scriptures that you've got to confess your sin in order to be forgiven. So their children would have had to confess. But in addition to that, there was also burnt offerings that were required. And so Job wanted to make sure. He says, I don't know at the end there. He says, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so Job did this continually whenever they got together. He was spiritually invested in his children. He was spiritually invested in his children. I guess I'd sum up Job's life then in three small lessons. First of all, he had a value of children. He valued children. And some people choose not to have children. Some people choose to remain single. And they choose to advance God's kingdom that way. As uh, Andrew was mentioning er earlier, the Apostle Paul, he chose to say stink stay single, and advance the kingdom of God. Others choose to get married and have children. And this is another way of advancing the kingdom of God. And being involved in the multiplying of creation that God has given us that ability to do. So he valued children. He fostered tight family relationships. He fostered tight family relationships. Not only did he um, uh, foster the relationships in such a degree that they wanted to be together for the feast, at the very end, when Job was handing out an inheritance, he not only gave an inheritance to his sons, he also gave it to his daughters. It says that Job's daughters were so fair 
And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. This is a rare thing. But he wanted to make sure, I think, that his children were not thinking one or over the other and not causing that sibling rivalry. And then finally, he invested in the spiritual well-being of the children. And so he wanted to make sure that these children were okay. And so he, um, he offered these burnt offerings for them just in case. Now, Jeff, this morning and I, we didn't uh, get together and talk about this, but I wanted to end with the exact same passage that he chose this morning to start us off with. And so, dads, how can we have an influence on our kids spiritually, apart from our instruction? Job, he's doing it by offering burnt offerings, making sure, hopefully, that they're okay with God. So how do we do that apart from our instruction? We pray. We pray for our kids. And I'm going to refer to that same passage that uh, Jeff referred to earlier, but I want to refer to it in a way as fathers. This is the way that we can have a spiritual impact on our children. It says this in Paul's prayer. I pray that he would grant my children that according to his riches and glory, that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in the hearts of our children through faith and that my children being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge that my children may be filled up to the fullness of God. Amen. Good morning. My name is Bryce. I'm uh, from Chapel House. And so Dan and Andrew spoke on two different fathers. And what I want to do, I want to speak on the fathers of Israel as a whole. So before I start, a little story. Every once in a while, some of us from Chapel House and some of us from the neighborhood and some friends will get together. And as men, we'll have what we call a war and whiskey night. We'll sip on some whiskey and we'll watch a war movie because we're men. We're simple-minded. <laughs> and usually, in every war movie, when all hope is lost... There's no other option. There's nowhere to turn. Someone will stand up and give a speech. Kind of like Anakin giving the Riders of Rohan at a speech to defeat the Hufflepuffs and stuff like that. I don't watch those movies. But they'll give a speech. And it's a speech that encourages the people that, that people think, yes, we can do this. And there's a number of those speeches in the Bible. And there's one that has always stuck out to me. And I want to give a little bit of context before I read this story. This takes place after the exile of Egypt. Oh, sorry, after the exile of Babylon. So Israel, they sinned in the promised land, and they go to Babylon, where they're there for 70 years. And after those 70 years are up, they're allowed to go home. They can go back to Israel. And some of them choose to go back, and the first thing they do, they rebuild their own homes. And then they rebuild the temple. And then they stop. The walls of Jerusalem are left broken, destroyed, and the gates are burned with fire. And Nehemiah, 20 years after they're allowed to go back home, Nehemiah is at work. And he hears from his brother, he says, Brother, how is Jerusalem? How is the city of my fathers? And his brother says, It's not great, the walls are still destroyed. Everything is still broken. Nehemiah, he's broken over this. And he weeps and he prays and he comes up with a plan. He takes some time off of work and he goes to see Jerusalem. He says, I want to go see this wall, this city for myself. Now remember in that day, if a city didn't have a wall, a city was hardly a city because there was no way for it to defend itself. You needed a strong wall. And Nehemiah goes and he checks out the city. 
It's exactly like it's been reported to him. The gates are burned with fire. The wall is half a wall at best, and there's huge gaps in it. So Nehemiah, he rallies the people together. The people of Israel, he says, we got to rebuild the wall. We can do this. This is the Lord's city. Let's do this. And so they start rebuilding the wall, and it's going great for a short while. And then the surrounding nations, they see the Israelites building the wall, and they start making fun of them publicly. Look at these silly Jews building this wall. Do they really think they can build this wall with all these broken stones and, and rubble? But the Israelites keep building. And as they keep building, the surrounding nations up the ante and they say, you know what, let's not just make fun of them. Let's go kill them. Let's just go kill the Jews. Then they won't be able to rebuild the wall. And the Jews are rightfully afraid. If you turn to Nehemiah 4, Nehemiah, he prays to the Lord God. And he comes up with a plan and he addresses the people. This is Nehemiah 4, 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is the word of God. So for Kate and I, shortly after we moved into our home, friends of ours, John and Letitia, they moved in two blocks away. And John asked me one day, he said, uh, Bryce, what, uh, what's, your, what's the weapon beside your bed as you sleep at night? Any fathers have a baseball bat or a tire or something by their bed? One, two, not a father, but I'll take it. If you don't, talk to your pastors, quote this verse, say it's a church expense and buy yourself a new golf club. But that was something that I never had. When it was just Kate and I, that I never had a bedroom weapon that I kept nearby because Kate's a climber, she's got strong arms, and I'm a runner, I can go get help if someone breaks in. <laughs> we had a game plan, and we loved that. But when we had kids, everything changed. And like us as fathers, when we had our first little one, or countless other little ones, our mindset changed. It wasn't just me and my wife. It wasn't just me. It was me and my family now. I have a family to protect. I've got a family to provide for. As an example, how many of us fathers, or even husbands for that matter, have had this conversation at least twice this week? You're getting ready for bed, and you're crawling into bed, and your wife goes, did you lock the doors? And then depending on how tired you are, you go, no, I left them wide open. <laughs> but as fathers, we lock the doors, close the windows, we set the alarm because we know we got a family to protect. Amen? Amen? Okay, fathers, you got to protect your families. Come on. But as fathers, we do more than just make sure the doors are locked. There's a lot we do as fathers that we didn't expect to do when we signed up for having kids. We didn't expect all the late nights as our kids were up scared because they had nightmares and we'd go in and reassure them, don't worry, dad's here. It's just a bad dream. Where we have long days at work where we're pulling overtime or working on weekends because we want to provide for our families. Or fathers, how many times have we, had, have we been driving for countless hours on family vacation alone? Not because there's no one else in the car, but because we were driving as we let everyone else sleep in the car. We do it because we're family. But as fathers, we also know that life was much harder than we all thought this was going to be with increased grocery bills, gas prices, taxes, 
with the pressure of raising our kids to love God and love others, and with the weight of leading our families, sometimes it's good to be reminded like Nehemiah reminds his fathers. Remember the Lord. The first thing that Nehemiah says as he addresses the nobles, the leaders, and the men of the city, he says, remember the Lord. Remember Yahweh. Remember the God of power, the personal God of power. As he's addressing the people, he says, if there's one thing we need to remember going forward is that we have a personal God of power who is on our side, who is intimately involved with our decisions. As he is addressing the people, he says, this, this Yahweh, this God of power, is the personal God. It's the same God who Moses, who Abraham, who Gideon, who David cried out for when they said, I don't know what to do next. I don't know where to go from here. These men cried out to a personal God of power. And that personal God of power always responded. It wasn't always how they thought it would turn out. It wasn't always in the way they probably hoped for. But that Yahweh always responded because he is great and awesome. Amen? He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. But Nehemiah, he doesn't just say, hey, do this for the Lord. He says, do this for your families. Nehemiah, he looks at the wall and he looks at the, the threat coming around them from all these other nations. And he says, fathers, we don't have a wall, but what I want you to do I need you guys to be the wall to stand between your families and the outside world. So in the spaces behind the wall, in open spaces, he stations the husbands, the fathers, in the gaps of the wall. You guys will stand guard all night. You're going to work all day and you'll stand guard all night to protect your families from the threat that might come from out there. Now if you were to skim through chapter 3, the chapter just before this, you'll see that none of these men were soldiers. These men were uh, priests, They were Levites, they were perfumers, they were goldsmiths, just to name a few. These were normal working guys. None of them signed up to be soldiers. And none of us fathers here will probably ever come to a place where we have to physically protect our families. But we'd be willing to give our lives for our families. Amen? None of us? Amen. Thank you. Nehemiah says, do this for the Lord, but do this for your families. And he tells the families something important. He says, you guys may have homes, but I don't want you to go sleep in your homes. I want you to camp out behind your fathers. And he stationed the people by their clans behind them. So as the husbands and fathers are standing in the gaps of the wall, protecting the family, willing to give themselves for the family, Nehemiah says, but have your wives and your daughters and your sons camp out behind you. You want a man to stand up. You want a man to, to fight. You put his family behind him. Which is why us as fathers, we have pictures of our kids on our desks or have pictures in our wallets or all of us probably have a picture of our kids on our phones. Why? Because it's a constant reminder of why we do what we do. We have these little ones behind us. That is why we do what we do. We remember the Lord, but we remember our families who are behind us. Something I say at Chapelos is keep running and keep fighting. And I take that from 2 Timothy 2.4 where Paul, he's at the end of his life and he says to Timothy, he says, Brother, I have run the good race. I have fought the good fight. And it's not that Paul was literally running or literally fighting. But Paul says, I have striven to do well in every area of life. I have fought to do well. I have raced to do well in every area of life. 
And for us as fathers, may we keep running and keep fighting. Amen? Amen. Fathers, can you stand, please? If your knee hurts, that means it's going to rain later. (laughs) Fathers, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God is good. And all the time. It's because of that good God we are all here. Amen? Amen.